0: Some of you are visiting with us for the first time. I want to welcome you. We're glad you've come here to Redemption Hill Church. And uh, as always, I want to say a, a greeting to those who are at home. We know we have friends and family uh, spread around who, who like to tune in from time to time, and there's several from our own church family who are at home today. So we extend our greetings to you, and we miss you. Go ahead and turn your Bibles this morning to Exodus chapter 13. We've been in the book of Exodus for the last several weeks, probably the last two months, a little more, and today brings us to Exodus chapter 13, and our text today will be verses 1 through 16. It's kind of a longer text, but I'm going to read it in a sitting, and then we'll walk through it together. Exodus chapter 13, beginning in verse 1. The Lord said to Moses, consecrate to me all the firstborn." Whatever is the first to open the womb among the people of Israel, both of man and of beast, is mine. Then Moses said to the people, "'Remember this day in which you came out from Egypt, out of the house of slavery. For by a strong hand the Lord brought you out from this place. No leavened bread shall be eaten. Today, in the month of Abib, you are going out.' And when the Lord brings you into the land of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, which he swore to your fathers to give you, a land flowing with milk and honey, you shall keep this service in this month. Seven days you shall eat unleavened bread, and on the seventh day there shall be a feast to the Lord. Unleavened bread shall be eaten for seven days. No leavened bread shall be seen with you, and no leaven shall be seen with you in all your territory. You shall tell your son... On that day, it is because of what the Lord did for me when I came out of Egypt, and it shall be to you as a sign on your hand and as a memorial between your eyes that the law of the Lord may be in your mouth. For with a strong hand, the Lord has brought you out of Egypt. You shall therefore keep this statute at its appointed time from year to year. When the Lord brings you into the land of the Canaanites, as he swore to you and your fathers and shall give it to you. You shall set apart to the Lord all that first opens the womb. All the firstborn of your animals that are males shall be the Lord's. Every firstborn of a donkey you shall redeem with a lamb. Or if you will not redeem it, you shall break its neck. Every firstborn of man among your sons you shall redeem. And when in time to come your son asks you, what does this mean? You shall say to him, by a strong hand, the Lord brought us out of Egypt from the house of slavery. For when Pharaoh stubbornly refused to let us go, the Lord killed all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both the firstborn of man and the firstborn of animals. Therefore, I sacrifice to the Lord all the males that first open the womb, but all the firstborn of my sons I redeem. It shall be as a mark on your hand or frontlets between your eyes, for by a strong hand the Lord brought us out of Egypt." Heavenly Father, we come before you today as a needy people. We are a people in need of your grace, people in need of your spirit's ministry, people in need of spiritual food, food that you've provided for us in your word. Thank you, God, that you have poured out grace upon us. You sent your son, Jesus Christ, and through him you have redeemed and ransomed a people for your name through his death on the cross and his resurrection. And to those people whom you have redeemed, you've given us, Lord, your spirit, and you've given us your word, and you have provided all that we need. There is rich food for us on the table today. So God, I pray that you would feed our souls this morning, that we might love you, that we might be changed to be more like your son, Jesus. And we ask this for the sake of his glory, and we ask in his name, amen. The book of Exodus is history. It's a historical narrative, and it's real history. This isn't mythology, it's not um, folklore, it's true. This is a story that happened at a specific point in time, and it happened to real people. People who were actually slaves in Egypt, people who really were oppressed. And real plagues actually happened. A literal exodus took place where God brought this nation out of the land of Egypt. And forever, they would know this God as the one who redeemed them. He was the one who brought their fathers out of the land of Egypt. But as we've been pointing out over the last several weeks in the book of Exodus, this real historical event also provides for us a pattern, a spiritual pattern of salvation. There are parallels and themes in this story that are transposed into a higher key in our own redemption, our own salvation. Just like for Israel, our own salvation includes God's victory over the enemy to set us free. Our own salvation includes God's rich provision of all that we need for life and godliness. Our own salvation includes God fulfilling his promises. And our own salvation includes God's creation of a new community, bringing people together from different tribes and tongues. So if this is what God has done in the Exodus, and if it... If it's what God has done for many of us, then what are we supposed to do in response? Well, this text speaks to that question. As Israel takes her first steps away from Egypt, I mean, literally, the, the door is still swinging behind them here. They are walking out of the land after the 10th plague. As they're leaving, God gives them this instruction in Exodus 13, and this instruction is intended to shape their response to God's redemption. And it can be summed up in three words, remembrance, retelling, and recognition. Those would be our, our three points this morning. I want to look at these three responses because we need to understand what their function was for ancient Israel because when we do, then we'll also understand how these instructions ought to shape our own response to God's grace so that we can know how we should worship and how we can respond to all that God has done for us through his son, Jesus Christ. So first of all, what I want to point out this morning is that number one, salvation calls for remembrance. Salvation calls for remembrance, and that's what so much of this text is about. God's purpose in bringing them out from slavery so they were no longer under the rule of their old master was so that they might serve God, their true master. So it's freedom from slavery that is freedom to serve God. This service, as it's called in verse 5, this is a life of worship. And this worship, this service, is perpetuated as the people remember what God did for them. It was important that they remember. Now, if you've been with us over the last several weeks, you know we've already talked about the Feast of Unleavened Bread. This instructions for this special seven-day-long meal, this feast has already been given. So you might say, so why is he repeating this? Is this a little bit redundant? Well, Calvin points out that the focus here is not so much on instruction, but on exhortation. He is urging them to do what it was that he's commanded them to do. Not to forget, but to make sure they carry out these instructions that they will be that they're accountable to perform, especially once they get into the land. So he's urging them to be faithful. And it includes this command in verse 3. He says, remember. Moses says to the people, remember this day. It's not a suggestion. It's not just some good advice. God commands them. You must remember. The same God who commanded Moses to speak to Pharaoh. The same God who commanded Pharaoh to let the people of Israel go. The same God who commanded these Israelites to paint their doorways with the blood of the Lamb now commands them to remember. Remember. Why? Because it's easy for us to forget, isn't it? Yesterday's joys are too easily replaced by today's anxieties. We need to remember. What is it that they're supposed to remember? He says, remember this day. Remember what happened on this day. And what happened on this day was God's great deliverance by a strong hand. If you're reading this text um, before Sunday, we often send out an email and say, read through the passage so that you're sort of prepared for Sunday. I asked you to look for repeated phrases. And four different times we see this phrase. God had delivered them by a strong hand. Four times that appears. Verse 3, verse 9, verse 14, and verse 16. The signs and wonders performed in Egypt were God's power on display, his strong hand. Not that God has a literal, physical hand. This is language that's meant to powerfully portray what God is actively doing. It's his power, wielded on behalf of Israel to bring them out of slavery. A staff turned into a serpent. Water turned into blood. All the different plagues that took place, they were supposed to remember these things. And God gives them a specific way, a practice that will help them to remember. He gives them the Passover meal. He gives them the feast of unleavened bread. And he gives them the dedication of the firstborn. These are all rituals that will help them to commemorate their departure from Egypt. At the Passover meal, the lamb would be slain and eaten, reminding them of what took place. The night that the tenth plague fell upon Egypt. The Feast of Unleavened Bread would remind them of how they left in a hurry and they didn't even have time to let their bread rise. So they were to celebrate these things in order to relive these unique events to remind them of that night over and over and over again. But Moses also tells the people why it's so important that they remember. Look in verse 9. After giving these repeated instructions regarding the the Feast of Unleavened Bread. He says, It shall be to you as a sign on your hand and as a memorial between your eyes that the law of the Lord may be in your mouth. Later generations of Israelites would actually take these commands um, literally along with a couple other passages like Deuteronomy 6 and they would write this passage down on little strips of paper and actually tie it to these little boxes on their hands and on their heads. That's not exactly what God was wanting. He wanted this to be internalized and to be imprinted on their soul. You can actually wear those things and forget about them. But, but this is the imagery that is given to us, that these things are to be constantly seen right in front of your face. You shouldn't be forgetting these things. This is language that is important for them to remember, that this, and the reason for it, the reason that it needs to be, always before them is so that the law of the Lord would be in their mouth. You see, it's in remembering their deliverance, remembering God's faithfulness, that they will be motivated and compelled to do what God has told them to do. They'll be compelled to keep God's covenant. You see, remembering what God has done for us in salvation, it motivates obedience, doesn't it? It encourages us to renew our commitment to the God who saved us. God is saying, listen, remember this day. Remember this day so that my law will always be on the tip of your tongue. So that you'll be motivated, reminded, encouraged, compelled to keep my covenant. You see, there's language here in this text about their future in the land of Canaan. A time that, well, at that time it was inhabited by pagan nations. We see this in verse 5. He says, the Lord's going to bring you into this land the land that he swore to your fathers to give you. That's where they were going. And it would have been easy once they got there to sort of set up shop and gradually allow the memory of what God had done for them to fade. We all know that, don't we? Life gets busy. Work happens. Family happens. You have weddings. You have funerals. You have everything that life encapsulates. And it's easy for all of those things, the busyness of life, to crowd out thoughts of God's deliverance which really means to crowd out thoughts of God. And then you find yourself saying, why is it such a big deal that I'm doing all these things? Why do I need to keep his commandments again? But consider this, God did not rescue them from slavery and bring them into the land of Canaan just so that their lives would be more comfortable. Remember, he rescued them so that they might serve him, so that they could worship him. And remembering what God had done in the exodus would help to inspire fresh daily obedience and worship. Not only would this remembrance inspire obedience, but it would also strengthen their faith. Verse 11 says, When the Lord brings you into the land of the Canaanites, as he swore to you and your fathers, and shall give it to you. So that means this promise is still future. There's still future promises, yet unfulfilled at this point. Little did they know, they actually had 40 years wandering in the wilderness ahead of them before the land would be given to them, before they would enter the promised land. And when they got there, they would face a significant challenge. There was people already living there. There were cities with armies and fortifications. How were they going to drive out these nations? How could they inhabit this land that was full of hostile tribes Well, the same God who worked a great salvation in Egypt, the same God who defeated Pharaoh and all of the gods of Egypt and the army of Egypt, that same God would be with them in Canaan. The same God who promised in Exodus also promised to give them the land. And they needed to remember this. And in this ritual remembrance of remembering what God had done, that would serve to not only inspire obedience, but it would also strengthen their faith. To say, yes, God will once again stretch out his strong hand and act on our behalf. Salvation calls for remembrance. We need this. It inspires obedience and worship, but it also encourages and strengthens our faith for the future. But secondly, salvation also calls for retelling. It calls for a retelling. Look in verse 8. You shall tell your son. On that day, it is because of what the Lord did for me when I came out of Egypt. You see, it's not only important that these people not lose the memory of what God did for them, that's not enough. They also needed to pass it on. They also needed to pass it on because the precious knowledge of God that these people had had acquired through this experience, their sense of awe at God's power, their sense of gratitude for God's grace and his faithfulness, all of that needed to be transferred so that a new generation could worship and serve God. Remember, that's God's long-term purpose, that this nation would serve him and worship him. So notice this command. He says, you shall tell your son, verse 8, on That day. His command includes several key elements. First of all, this means they had to take personal responsibility. He says, You tell your son. Personal responsibility. It was not someone else's job to be the one who made the primary spiritual investment in their children. This is the job of fathers and mothers to teach their children, to pass on this knowledge of God and this record of what God had done for them in the land of Egypt. So they're to take personal responsibility. They're also to give personal testimony. They're not just saying, oh yeah, here's what God did. No, they're instructed to say, this is what the Lord did for me. For me. The worship of God in these rituals, in the Passover, and the feast, and the dedication of the firstborn, It required a personal appropriation of grace. This is different than just teaching your kids, you know, world history. No, this is what the Lord did for me. He is my God, and this is my personal testimony of God's grace at work. That must be passed on. So they take personal responsibility to give personal testimony, and they're also to explain the theological significance of this history. It's not just facts. We see this in verse 8, and especially in verse 14. He says, When in time to come your son asks you, What does this mean? You shall say to him, By a strong hand, The Lord brought us out of Egypt from the house of slavery. Then he goes on to explain what happened at the Passover. There is theological significance to this history. Children need to know why. Children need to know what this means. What these rituals are about. You see, there's a great danger in anything that we do repeatedly. There's a danger of these rituals becoming empty. There's a danger of religious devotion becoming a matter of just going through the motions. That can even happen for us, can't it? Yeah, this is what we do on Sunday. And then we go eat lunch and watch football, take a nap, and then we repeat over and over again. We sing these songs, we do communion, I see some of my friends, and it becomes very normal. There's a lot of goodness to that to the normalcy and the repetition. But there's a danger if we lose sight of the theological significance. There's a danger if we lose sight of the meaning of it all. It means something. We can't just go through the motions. So Moses instructs the people, teach your children what it means. Show them how this points to God. Tell them not just, here's what we do as a family, but tell them here's why we do this. This is such an important point for this new nation, Israel, and it's one that would be picked up and repeated several other times in the law. In Deuteronomy chapter six verse six, it says, "These words that I command you today shall be on your heart, And you shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house, and when you walk by the way, and when you lie down, and when you rise, you shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. Sounds familiar, doesn't it? Same kind of language as Exodus 13. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. You see, if these people were going to be what God intended, if they were going to be a nation that served and worshipped God, then they needed to train the next generation. Otherwise, knowledge of God, fear of God, love for God, trust in God and his promises, that would all fade away. Later on in Deuteronomy chapter 6 and verse 10, it says, And when the Lord your God brings you into the land that he swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob, to give you, with great and good cities that you did not build, and houses full of all good things that you did not fill, and cisterns that you did not dig, and vineyards and olive trees that you did not plant, and when you eat and are full, then take care. Take care lest you forget the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. Salvation calls for remembrance, remembrance. Sadly, this forgetting of God would one day happen. After the death of Joshua, Moses' replacement, it says in Judges chapter 2, verse 8, Joshua, the son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, died at the age of 110 years, and they buried him within the boundaries of his inheritance And all that generation also were gathered to their fathers, and there arose another generation after them who did not know the Lord or the work that he had done for Israel. We know what happened after that, don't we? They forget God, and they go after false gods, and they fall under God's judgment. You see, it only takes one generation for substantial change to take place. Unless there's intentional teaching, unless there's intentional training, unless we take great care to pass on these truths about God, it will be lost. Salvation calls for remembrance and for retelling. It has to be passed on, to be repeated, to be proclaimed, to be announced. So salvation calls for remembrance and for retelling, but there's a third point that comes out of this text. Salvation also calls for recognition. This is where we'll spend most of our time this morning. Recognition. To this point, most of what we talked about might feel a little bit repetitive because we've touched on these things already when we've talked about the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread. But it's good that these things are repeated. Anything that's important is worth repeating, right? That repetition aids learning. We need to hear it more than once. But there's also some new material in this passage, and the new material here in chapter 13 has to do with the firstborn. There's this new command given in verse 2, consecrate to me all the firstborn. Whatever is the first to open the womb among the people of Israel, both of man and of beast, is mine. And then the fuller explanation, the instructions for how to carry out this command, that's given in verses 11 through 16, which we read earlier. Now, this command to consecrate the firstborn, what does that mean? You probably haven't used the word consecrate um, this week in your day-to-day vocabulary. What does that mean? To consecrate means to give to God for his special purposes. It means to set apart to the Lord, to set apart for the Lord's purposes. Some of you may have the New American Standard Version in your lap. And it has the word sanctify. Sanctify. The root word here that's translated either consecrate or sanctify, it comes from the same word as holy. Set apart as holy for a specific purpose to the Lord. So we need to understand the background for this command. Remember that Israel was collectively claimed by God as what? As his firstborn. Remember Exodus chapter 4. God told Moses to say to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son. And I say to you, Let my son go, that he may serve me. If you refuse to let him go, behold, I will kill your firstborn son. So, this idea of firstborn has already been a very important theme in this story. And we know that that threat issued through Moses to Pharaoh. Well, it became a reality. The tenth and final plague brought this to pass. Chapter 12. Of Exodus tells us in verse 29 that the Lord struck down all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, from the firstborn of Pharaoh who sat on his throne to the firstborn of the captive who was in the dungeon, and all of the firstborn of the livestock. Verse 30 says, There wasn't a house where someone was not dead. But God, remember, made a special provision for Israel through the Passover. Through a substitutionary sacrifice, through the killing of a lamb and and painting the blood of that lamb on their doorframe, the firstborn of Israel were spared. God saw the blood on the door, and he passed over. It's interesting in verse, um, verse 12 when it says, Set apart to the Lord all that first opens the womb. It's the same word for pass over to the Lord. It's all rooted in this story, very fresh history for them. So with all that in mind, considering who Israel is as God's firstborn and considering what has taken place in their deliverance, the death of the firstborn in Egypt and the redemption of the firstborn through the Passover, with all of that sort of as the background, God gives this command. Consecrate to me, set apart for me all of your firstborn. Each successive generation. God lays claim to their life, to their best, to their first, to their future. It belongs to God. He says, whatever is the first to open the womb among the people of Israel, both of man and of beast, is mine. You see, they all belong to God. The clean animals, like sheep and goats and cattle, the firstborn males were to be sacrificed to God. The unclean beasts of burden, like donkeys, they were not fit for sacrifice. So they couldn't be sacrificed. They could be redeemed. A lamb could be sacrificed in their place, and then they could retain that animal for the purposes of work. But if they would not redeem it, they're given instructions to kill it. Why is that? The point is this. It belongs to God, and it cannot and must not be kept and used by man unless there is the price of redemption paid. Obviously, there's not a plan B for their own children, um, thankfully. So, they were all expected to redeem their firstborn sons with the blood of a lamb. So, what this would mean is that it was not only that first generation in Egypt, that first generation of firstborn, that had been redeemed by the blood of a lamb. This would have happened for every generation. They couldn't get away from this truth, this very visible, very tangible picture. The sight and the sound and the smell would have been with them, that one had died in their place and their life had been spared at a cost. That was something every generation would have played out in real time over and over again, imprinting upon them that they belonged to God and that God had accepted a sacrificial substitute on their behalf. The children would ask why, and the answer would be over and over again because God brought us out of Egypt. And he brought us out of Egypt by the blood of a lamb. So you might ask the question, so what is it that they're separated or, or consecrated for? What is it that they're set apart for? Well, as we continue to read scripture, it seems that these firstborn were originally meant to serve in sort of a priestly role. Exodus 19 tells us that Israel is to be a kingdom of priests, a nation of priests. Priests, And we see in Exodus 24 that there's this group of young men that are offering sacrifices on behalf of the people of Israel, serving in this priestly role. These would have been those firstborn that were set apart to God. Later, however, this role would be transferred to one tribe, to the tribe of the Levites. And eventually, God would accept this entire tribe as a representative, as a substitute for all the firstborn of Israel. So see this idea of substitution and representation. This is getting taught all the time in various different ways. Numbers chapter 3, verse 11. The Lord spoke to Moses saying, behold, I have taken the Levites from among the people of Israel instead of every firstborn who opens the womb among the people of Israel. The Levites shall be mine, for all the firstborn are mine. On the day that I struck down all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, I consecrated for my own All the firstborn in Israel, both of man and of beast, they shall be mine. I am the Lord. So, what's the point of all this? Well, it's simply this. What God had said to Pharaoh when he said, Israel is my firstborn son. We know that had great implications for the pagan king, didn't it? In essence, the message was this You've been picking on this kid on the playground, but his dad just showed up, and now you're in trouble. You were picking on the wrong kid. So that had big implications for Pharaoh. But this announcement, Israel is my firstborn son, it also had big implications for Israel. It had meaning for them as well. To be God's firstborn brought amazing privileges. God was their father, their savior, their protector, their provider. Wonderful privileges and blessings come with being God's son. But it also came with serious obligations. They belong to God. They answer to him. And this truth was to be imprinted upon each and every successive generation through this ritual of dedicating the firstborn, consecrating the firstborn. You see, Israel needed to recognize not only who they were, but also whose they were. As God's firstborn redeemed from Egypt, they owe everything to God. God did not owe them salvation. That was pure grace. They owe everything to God in return. Those whom God saves belong to him. And those whom he saves must recognize and embrace this truth. For them to obey this command would have been their way of saying, yes, God, we belong to you. Yes, God, we owe everything to you. Yes, God, we remember what you did for us, and we joyfully embrace both our privilege as your firstborn, but also our obligations. We." are yours. These three truths how they how the redeemed are to respond to their redeemer they were very important for this nation if they were going to be what god intended them to be but these three truths also have great application for us as the children of god today we too are called to remember to remember too many christians suffer from what has been sometimes called gospel amnesia. We forget. We forget what Christ has done for us. In many hearts, in many homes, even in many churches, the gospel story, that Christ died and shed his blood for sinners and rose again, it's often assumed or it's taken for granted or it's even forgotten. Sometimes this central primary truth of the gospel is set aside in favor of other things, even good things. But the marvelous truth of the cross and what Jesus Christ has done on our behalf to save us, that must never be neglected. It must never be assumed. It must never be taken for granted. It must be remembered. Paul tells Timothy in 2 Timothy 2, verse 8, remember Jesus Christ. Risen from the dead, the offspring of David, as preached in my gospel. You see, the strong hand of the Lord that we see at work in the Exodus has also worked to bring about a great salvation for us. This strong hand of the Lord raised Jesus Christ from the dead. This strong hand of God accomplished our salvation. And this we must remember. And just like Israel, when we remember what God has done for us through his son, Jesus Christ, we find a powerful motivation for worship and obedience. In Titus chapter 2, verse 14, it says that Jesus Christ gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness, get this, and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Christ died to purify for himself a people for his own possession. We've been redeemed, and we belong to him. And his purpose for us is that we would be zealous for good works. That zeal, that strong desire, that hatred for sin that is to be present in the heart of Christians, that eagerness to serve God and glorify him, that excitement to obey him, that's the product of God's saving grace in our hearts. And if, if that zeal, if that eagerness, that strong desire to serve the Lord, if that's like a flame of fire, remembering what God has done for us is like pouring gas on that fire. It strengthens our resolve. It increases our zeal. It gives us joy. It humbles us. And it puts us in the place where we are eager and ready to serve the Lord and do the things that he has called us to do. Guilt's not the best motivator. Fear alone is not a sufficient motivator. But remembering what our Savior has done for us, remembering his suffering, remembering his resurrection from the dead, that will light the fire underneath apathetic Christians. We need to remember. We need to remember. We're also called not only to remember, but as Christians, we too have been called to retell this account of what God Has done. And this is convicting, isn't it? It's not enough just for you and and me to remember what God has done for us personally. The truth of the gospel, the good news, it is to be passed on. And we're called to reach not only those around us, but also those who come after us. Yes, there's lost people who need to hear, and we go tell them. But there's also children in our homes and children in this church who need to hear. And there's new believers in this church who need to hear. They need to hear more. They need to learn more about this God and come to understand more deeply what it is that God has done for us. We do this in worship. We sing about Christ. We sing about the fulfillment of God's promises through him. We sing about his death, burial, and resurrection. We sing the gospel that the blood of the lamb cleanses us of our sins. And that it's not through our works, it's not through our efforts, but it's through grace alone. It's by grace alone, through faith alone, that we can be saved. We sing that all the time here. That's on purpose. We are literally trying to brainwash you. Trying to wash you clean of those impulses to think that God loves me because of all the good things I do. No, we sing that God loves us because of his grace, because he chooses to. We want to wash our minds clean from the lies of the enemy that say you've done too much and you can't be forgiven. That your past is going to stick with you and you're carrying a scarlet letter. No, we sing that there is power in the blood. We sing that Jesus paid it all. We're literally trying to imprint these truths on our minds as we sing. So thank you, Carrie, for picking really good songs. Because they help us to do this. These truths need to be told and proclaimed and retold and reproclaimed. We do this in our worship. We do it in conversation with one another. We should be preaching the gospel to each other on a regular basis. We do this in the teaching and in the preaching here in this church. We also do it in our parenting. We're not just trying to do behavior modification for our kids. Yes, we want them to behave. Yes, we want them to not be little terrorists running around causing problems. That's a good and noble goal. Please, train your children to behave. That is important. But more than that, we want to teach their hearts. We want to tell them who God is and what God has done so that they might know him and worship him and serve him. We do this in our counseling. When we sit and talk about struggles that we have, we're always going to go back to the cross. How do we deal with our problems and our challenges? How do we deal with our hurts and our sins? How do we deal with our fears and our anxieties? There's many practical ways we try to do that, but it always starts at the cross. It always starts with who God is and who we are and what God has done to redeem us. That's where it all starts. We do this in discipleship. Our mission here as a church is to glorify God by being and making disciples of Jesus. How do we make disciples of Jesus? Jesus says it in Matthew 28, teach them everything I've commanded you. Discipleship requires retelling what God has done and how that ought to shape our lives. So let me ask you, are you participating in this effort? Are you telling this story in your worship? in your conversations, in your parenting? Are you going to tell the lost what Jesus has done to redeem guilty sinners? Are you going to tell the kids what God is like, how awesome he is, how powerful he is, how he not only created the world, he also defeated death? And he is the only one who's able to save people like us. Are you going to tell the kids? Are you going to teach the younger believers? Some of the people sitting in these chairs who are new to all this, and they need to learn more, are you going to help them? Or do you think that that's just the pastor's job? Or you know what, you know, teaching the kids, that's just their parents' job. Oh, helping someone who's dealing with struggles in their personal life, that's for somebody with a counseling certification. Not my problem. Christian, if you have experienced God's saving grace, then hear this. It is for you to say, This is what the Lord has done for me. And to retell what God is able to do, what He has done. If you've experienced it, if you've experienced any degree of God's grace, then you have something to share. You have something to talk about. You have something to proclaim. So give personal testimony, take personal responsibility. Salvation calls not just for remembrance, but for retelling. And that is God's calling for us. That's what it requires to make disciples. And then we're also called, just like the children of Israel, to recognize whose we are. You know what it's called when you take something that isn't yours and you use it for yourself? What do we call that? It's stealing. It's stealing. All that we are and all that we have belongs to God. He created us and he redeemed us. If you're a believer here today, he redeemed you at the cost of his son. That means you belong to him. And friends, if we live any other way, if I live at any level as if I belong to myself, that it's my time, it's my future, it's my gifts, it's my money. If I act like that, It means I'm failing to recognize God as my maker and as my savior, and I'm failing to recognize that I belong to him. Don't rob God. Instead, embrace a life of joyful submission to your savior, recognizing that you are his. Psalm 100 verse 3 says, Know that the Lord, he is God. It is he who made us, and we are his. We are his people and the sheep of his pasture. This is a great privilege, is it not? That we are his. This privilege of being his means that we are saved, we are loved, we are protected, we are kept, we are promised an eternal inheritance. An amazing privilege is ours if we are his. But it also brings with it certain obligations that our lives are not our own. 1 Peter two nine says, you are a chosen race, a holy priesthood, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. We are a people for his possession. No wonder Paul says in Romans chapter 12, I appeal to you therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, because of everything he's done for you in saving you. What? Present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. This is our response to God's salvation. We offer ourselves fully and wholly to Him. 1 Corinthians 6 says, You were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. When I offer myself to the Lord, to my Savior, And when you offer yourself to the Lord, this isn't charity. Because God doesn't need me, or you, or anything that we have. When we offer ourselves to God, it is simply our expression of gratitude. This is worship. And it's the recognition of His rightful ownership of my life. That's why Paul and so many of the other authors in the New Testament joyfully describe themselves as slaves of God. They belong to him and they serve him. That's not unique to the apostles. That's the pattern for all Christians. All that I am and all that I have belongs to God. Really, all three of these themes, themes of remembering and retelling and recognizing whose we are, they all come together so powerfully in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Turn there real quick and we'll close with this. 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Paul writes this in chapter 5 verse 14. For the love of Christ controls us. Because we have concluded this. That one has died for all. Therefore all have died. And he died for all that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. Continuing down in verse 18, he says, all this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us, The message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. See, Paul remembered. He had thought about it. That Christ had died for him. And so he had concluded That he no longer was to live for himself, but to live for Christ. He got it. He got it. And because of that, he dedicated his life to telling others. Embraced this calling as an ambassador. So that God might speak through him to tell other people about the great power of God. His mercy. His grace. That in the death of Christ, sinners who are enemies of God can be reconciled to God the Father. He got it. He put all of this together, remembering, recognizing whose he is, and then telling others. Friends, the privileges of salvation come with an obligation to respond. Let's commit ourselves to remember all that God has done for us in Christ. Let's commit ourselves to tell all who will listen what God has done for us. And friends, let's choose to live lives of joyful surrender. And embrace the fact that all we are and all we have belongs to him. We're not our own. We belong to the one who loved us and who gave his life for us. We won't ever be able to outgive him. But what a joyful privilege that we get to worship and serve this God. As a part of this new community that he's building, a community that worships him, celebrates his gospel, trains the next generation, and lives as those who belong to him. Let's pray and ask that God would help us to live this out in our lives. Lord, you tell us in your word that it's so important not just to be hearers, but to be doers of what we find in Scripture. Lord, the message this morning is very simple. You've made it clear to us that you want us to remember what you've done. You want us to proclaim these truths to all who will listen are responsible to, and you want us to live as those who belong fully to you. Lord, these things are easy to say, but it's hard to do. Lord, there are many things that compete um, with the gospel for bandwidth in our brains. We think about so many things. Lord, help us to discipline our minds, to meditate on your grace and your love for us. Lord, sometimes the fear of what people will think, our own insecurities, they keep us from talking to others about the gospel. Sometimes our laziness and our distractedness keeps us from training and teaching our children what it is that they need to hear. Lord, I pray that you would help us to be faithful, to proclaim your good news. Lord, it's easy for us to rob you of what is rightfully yours. We start living as if our time and our money and our giftings that they're somehow ours to use for our own purposes, and we forget, Lord, that we belong to you. We've been purchased through the blood of the Lamb. Lord, help us to live lives that joyfully embrace that truth, that it's all yours. It's all yours. Lord, help us to use the things you've given us in the way that you want us to, for your glory, for your kingdom purposes. And Lord, for those who have not yet experienced this great work of salvation, as they've heard us talk about these things today, about forgiveness of sin that comes through a sacrificial substitute, Jesus Christ. Pray that they would recognize their need for salvation. Lord, draw them to yourself. Help them to see that it is only your strong hand that can save them from their sin, that can cleanse them of their guilt, that can rescue them from the wrath that is to come. No amount of their good works, no amount of going to church or cleaning up their own act can atone for their sins. Only Jesus Christ can. Pray that today, Lord, they would trust in his all-sufficient sacrifice, and that they would join us in worship and in this mission of making disciples as those who belong to you. We pray all this, Lord Jesus, in your name. Amen.